Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you. You are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. It's a show where we take an analytical look at how we can achieve peace, whether that be political peace, economic peace, societal peace, or perhaps the most important of them all, inner peace. Uncertainty surrounds many aspects of life across the world today. Leadership changes, climate change, rising prices, strikes. Many of the certainties we held just a few months ago have now changed. One of the biggest uncertainties has been around inflation and the cost of living. And as we discussed last month on Pathway to Peace, it's having a real effect on everyday living. Energy prices in particular have caused a lot of stress and strain for businesses, charities and individuals, especially here in the UK. One of the clearest impacts of the rising cost of energy in the UK has been the dichotomy between the struggle individuals face and the profits earned by large corporations producing the energy. The news has been full of figures for for both, and anger appears to be rising. So how worried should we be about the inequality that we've seen, the severe strain on individuals and the massive profits um, companies have have gained? Is this inequality a problem which should be tackled, or is it just a normal consequence of a capitalist market? Are profits a threat to peace and stability, or... Are they simply a motivational lesson for other aspiring business leaders? Is there a moral dimension to business or can their drive for profit be the sole objective? Well, joining me to discuss these issues are two of our regular panellists, Mrs. Shazia Bhatti and Mrs. Melissa Ahmadi. Shazia is a solicitor specialising in immigration from London and Melissa is a teacher and mother of two living in Hampshire. Assalamu alaikum ladies and welcome. Welcome, Sam, and thanks for having me. Welcome, thank you. So, Melissa, if I come to you first, um, you know, I mentioned it's energy prices in particular that we're focusing on in this programme. So could you give me a little bit more detail about the current situation? Why is this in the news and why is it a point of discussion? Don't prices rise normally in the course of time? What's different about this situation? I think now there's just so many things that are compounded at the same time. So you've got the cost of living crisis. You've got that's also fueled by the stagnated wages. You've got Brexit as well. Let's not forget global oil price fluctuations. Also the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine. So all of this, you know, together means that 1.3 million people are expected to fall into poverty by around April 2023. And that also coincides when tax hikes are set to kick in as well, as well as the cost of energy, which will rise by 54%. And as we know in the news, it's very, very topical at the moment. And the cap just recently went up on Friday. And it was more than what was expected by the public. And it's predicted again to go up in January. So it's very topical. And it's definitely on the minds of a lot of people at the moment. I know it's been definitely in the news and we've seen um, governments saying that we should start to think about how we use energy. 
Um, and we've seen other governments around the world have different reactions to this rise in prices. And then we've had charities such as Martin Lewis trying to get on and give practical advice. I listened to a radio uh, program today where people were debating if you should put tin foil behind your radiator because they're that concerned about how they will cope with heating their homes and the cost of that this winter. Um, I don't think we can underestimate the anxiety and the worry that many people face, something that was just normal, oh, you pay your electricity bill, pay your gas bill, didn't have to worry too much. In the past year, it's become, really has become a focus of stress. And we know that as, you know, it gets colder now, we're coming into autumn and then winter, people are are worried now. And I don't think there's ever been a situation where in the summer we're worried about what's going to happen with energy prices and how we're going to heat ourselves in the winter. I mean, I remember my mother talking about um, when she was a child, um, she didn't have central heating. So the inside of her window would be frozen in the winter. Mm. And I remember she would always tell us, you know, be thankful we don't have to uh, worry about that. But actually, at the moment, I think people are worried about Mm. that. And the government seems to be saying that, you know, or not necessarily the government, but some people seem to be saying, well, just deal with it. You don't have to be as warm as as you 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 don't have to be as warm as you want to. So you know there is a lot of worry, and I've also read a lot in the press and in the media about the anger towards the companies that are making profits. Um, and we know that there are big companies, BP and Shell, amongst others, have seen massive increases in their profits. Um, so you know it, it reminded me this dissatisfaction. A bit of when the poll tax was around, and I was young when that happened, and I, 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 I don't have a clear understanding of it, but I remember the anger and the rioting that went when the government introduced this poll tax in the, in the late 80s. And it was a time of recession and economic strain. And I remember, vaguely, people rebelling against it and protesting about it until the policy was changed. Um, which, and, obviously, you know, which then led to a change in leadership as well. Exactly. Yeah. But, and it's remembered as a, as a bad time. And I, I kind of get a similar inkling to the public mood now as, as was then. But uh, prof- companies making big profits is not a new thing. We have hugely successful international um, corporations such as Amazon, Tesla, Microsoft, Apple. They're hugely profitable. They're selling profit, profit uh, products, I beg your pardon, and they're making huge profit margins. So, Shazia, why are the energy companies being singled out uh, when other companies are just as profitable? Why is there anger about specifically the energy companies? Well, I think that's the thing, though. Heating and and energy is a basic need. It's not a luxury, but it's now getting beyond the reach of many people. And that's what people are so angry about. You know, if you don't have the money to buy a new phone or you don't have the money to buy luxuries, then people say, "Okay, fine, I don't have the money for that. But but people should be able to heat their homes and, and have enough energy. Um, and it's causing anxiety and panic as well as, you know, potential disorder. But, um, you know, meanwhile, energy companies have seen their profits grow at a much larger rate than usual. Um, for example, BP made a profit of £6.9 billion between April and June. And that's more than three times the normal profit rate as prices are rising at a faster rate than normal. And other companies are similarly making a large, large profit. Um, you know, as we know, Voice of Islam is a, is a Muslim radio station. And obviously, we need to bring the Islamic viewpoint here. 
Um, but the Islamic economic order doesn't belong to capitalism or to scientific socialism. But the economic philosophy of Islam is scientific without being mechanical and it's disciplined without being over-restrictive. And it allows private possession and private enterprise, but does not promote greed and the amassing of wealth in a few hands, whereby a large section of society turns in, turns you know, to destitute, to serve and, and slaves to a cruel and relentless system of exploitation. So in this context, energy, um, energy can be considered a, a trust, a natural resource that belongs to everyone and is also a basic need. It's not the profit to which people are objecting, um, which is, you know, accepted part of society, but it's the fact that it's profit from natural resources and for a requirement that people are going to suffer from if they don't have it. Absolutely. And, you know, as you said exactly rightly there, you know, it's not actually the making of the profit that people are concerned about. It's it's this um, mismatch between, you know, individuals saying, I'm struggling. I don't know if I can afford to pay the bill to cook my food. So I might have a pot noodle. I've seen these discussions in the media where people are saying they'll have low quality food that's not as nutritional because it will save them money on making it and where on the other hand companies are announcing massive profits like even more normal much larger than normal profits and there appears to be a, a mismatch between i'm suffering and they're benefiting so i think people start to raise the question about are those companies benefiting from my suffering and maybe that's where the anger is coming from i mean that's the um, point isn't it? That if you've hmm. got if you've got your needs and you can afford the things that you need to, to stay alive, um, actually, most people wouldn't care about the profits that the companies are making. But there was something there was something recently on the news about this woman that was saying she was spending all day on, on the buses so that she wouldn't have to stay at home and have her heating or her energy bills go up. I mean, that seems to be just a, a horrendous situation to be in. And I think also for me, we've um, they're talking about possibly one way to tackle people being actually unable to afford to heat their homes. They're talking about making warm banks for winter. Mm. Um, and I know that in my childhood, I didn't know of any food banks, whether there were any or not, I was unaware of them. And even up till maybe 10 years ago, I was sort of unaware of food banks. But now they're everywhere. And people rely on them. So we've come to accept as a society that we have food banks where there are people who can't afford to buy the food they need. And that doesn't sit right with me because it's not tackling the systemic problem. So creating warm banks is another way of just accepting that people won't be able to afford their homes rather than tackling the systemic problem, which is companies profiting and people suffering. So, you know, I understand what you've said about basic needs. And this is why the inequality, to me, it stands out as the inequality between profits and prices. And that's what makes it feel unjust to many people. I think there seems to be an injustice within the system that, you know, I'm suffering and they're making mega profits more than normal. And, you know, we've seen a response to that. We've seen petitions and organisations such as Enough Enough is Enough and Don't Pay springing up to respond to the current situation. But, you know, at the end of the day, these energy companies are private companies. They're not organs of the state. Um, but a lot of anger has been focused on government leaders and people are looking to the government to respond and, and to help people 
when actually these are private companies. So, Melissa, what role can or should governments play in addressing these inequalities? Is it actually an issue for the government or is it just a private matter for the companies? Yeah, well, I mean, let's bring it back to an Islamic perspective for a minute. So Islam as a religion and as a tradition, it has a very long tradition of the state actually giving that financial support to the poor and the needy as well. Um, And in the time of Caliph Umar, who is the second caliph of Islam, there was a system that was established, which was, you know, it included pensions, it included child benefit and support for all who needed it. So there is a belief that the collective government does have a responsibility to provide for the basic needs of those under their care. And also within Islam, there's a belief that the provisions of the world shouldn't be hoarded or squandered. So there's this idea of social responsibility in order to maintain the justice within economic dealings with one another and in the public sphere as well. And especially those dealings which are concerned with basic needs. And just to quote a verse from the Holy Quran in chapter four, verse 59, it says, Verily Allah commands you to give trusts to those entitled and that when you judge between them, judge with justice. Surely that is best with which Allah admonishes you. But in the same way, Islam doesn't forbid the gaining of wealth, does it? Um, and it's permissible for individuals and businesses to become rich and, and be profitable. I mean, some of the early Muslims, such as Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hazrat Khadija, Hazrat Usman Ghani, may Allah be pleased with them, they were wealthy people. Um, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, was an independently wealthy woman who traded caravans of goods as far from Mecca, Syria, which you know, in terms of um, at that time, the, the distances were vast. Um, distances are still vast, but the, the journey times are, are, are much easier and quicker. Um, but Islam teaches us that exploitation and taking advantage, and that is what is not permissible. Um, and it says in the Holy Quran, um, chapter 17, verses 27 to 28, give the due to kinsmen and to the poor and to the wayfarer and squander not your wealth extravagantly. So it's it's kind of on both terms, isn't it? That you know you've got to you've got to have a balance between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And it also says, you know, just to sum sum both sides up, the state and the individual both have responsibility to protect the vulnerable. As Islam isn't a capitalist state or a communist state, it doesn't promote either one of those, but rather it, it prefers a middle ground or a middle middle path, so to speak, which is governed by the principles of justice. Because if justice is the root of peace, then any threat to justice is then a threat to peace also. And I think we've seen that um, time and time again, that when one nation or one company take the resources, because what we're talking about is that, you know, heating, it's, it's a natural resource. And when they take resources from other countries or from other people, or when they hold that resource and make it um, available at a high price to the exclusion of you know, most people of an average income, then it does create that anger. And that anger is a threat to peace, and it can be destabilizing. But I think just on a sort of an individual level, I think a lot of people are very worried. And I think that does create a lack of peace within yourself, and maybe within your home. I mean, so many studies have shown that financial strain is the cause of a lot of um, dispute and argument and problems within within a, a family unit or within, you know, within a small company or a small business. So, 
you know, that they, I don't think we can discount actually the mental stress and strain of, of, of not thinking about where can I go on holiday or which five star hotel can I go into, but actually, how can I just heat my home? When people are under stress just for their very basic daily needs, then I think that that creates a total lack of peace um, for people. So thank you was, to listen. Yeah, a, go, go ahead, Shazia. Yeah, go ahead. There was um, something today that I heard on the news about a child that wrote his letter to Father Christmas asking for more money because his parents couldn't heat their home. Um, mm. And so it's not just the adults that are worried, but obviously it's filtering down into to our children who are also concerned, maybe hearing... Um, you know, watching the news or or hearing things around the house where parents are getting concerned and worried about what's to come. Um, and that, you know, that is not good for, for any child to have to deal with. And it's not good for the peace of that child and the peace of that home. Absolutely. And I mean, we've heard the head of our community, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed. Um, he's the fifth Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And he's spoken so much about how the peace of all society starts within the home. Mm. So if the home life is unbalanced, then that is a threat, potential threat to wider peace in society. So thank you to listeners for joining us on the Voice of Islam radio, where here at Pathway to Peace, we're discussing how a rise in the cost of basic needs links to social peace. You know, we've spoken about the Islamic teachings saying that the state should provide basic needs for its citizens. But, you know, there's actually not an agreement about what constitutes basic needs. Um, so surely we know, because if we look around the world and we see developed, more developed and less developed nations economically, you know, we know that this definition changes both across location and across time. And we know that we live in an unequal world. I don't think we can pretend that we don't. So what's a basic need here might not be a basic need elsewhere. So. You know, Shazia, how can we come to an agreed definition of what is a basic need? I think actually there's no way to agree those terms because it takes a huge, you know, international cooperation and agreements, which, as we know, with with any situation, it's very hard to come by. But the International uh, Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which was entered into force in 1976, um, and said that the human rights that the covenant seeks to promote and protect include the right to work in just and favourable conditions, the right to social protection, to an adequate standard of living and to the highest attainable standards of physical and mental well-being, the right to education and the enjoyment of benefits of cultural freedom and scientific progress. You know, I think the reason it's so kind of vast, the definition, whereas we'd like a definition to be slightly easier and, and smaller to understand, but I think it's because it was trying to encompass all around the world um, and so it's difficult to to kind of have that in terms of so many different countries. But I think that food, water, clothing, sleep and shelter are the bare necessities for anyone's survival. Um, and this is one of the approaches used to determine poverty in developing countries. And it's so sad that we're talking about this in relation to the UK and in other so-called developed nations or economic developed nations. However, we can't compare, you know, we can't compare the poverty in the UK to that in other developing nations. But the basic needs approach, which was introduced by the International Labour Organization's World Employment Conference in 1976, and, and that's what it what the the, um, the terms that were used as bare necessities. But I think also energy is part of our basic needs. I mean, if we don't have energy, or we can't afford energy to heat up our homes or cook our food, then we might not be able to access food. We can't cook it. 
we may, may not be able to access sleep because of hunger or the fact that it's too cold. So energy really needs to be included because it, it kind of encompasses so much more um, than, you know, that definition I don't think is enough to encompass all the things that people require. Well, I think it mentions you, sorry, Melissa, it mentioned adequate standard of living. Yeah. So, I mean, that does cover, presumably that does cover um, heating, heating your home. Yes. I mean, in winter, we still get frost. It's still cold. Yeah. You know, that does include that. Yeah. yeah. And I think definitely within Islam, there is a precedence to want to agree with what these basic human rights can be. Um, there was a document, actually, which is almost 1500 years old, um, which enshrines the sort of liberties and the rights which are upheld by an Islamic-based leadership. And this is called the Charter of Medina. So at the opening of the South Hall Mosque in 2020, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, who is the current caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, said, and I quote, the founder of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him, always abided by the terms of the covenant and instructed the Muslims to do the same. And not once did he abuse his authority or violate the terms of the agreement in any way, nor did he ever manifest any form of injustice or discrimination towards the other communities or show any form of bias or favoritism towards the Muslims. He treated non-Muslims with compassion and was sensitive to their needs and to their traditions. And he goes on to say, without question, bringing relief to others and alleviating the physical and mental suffering of mankind is an integral part of our faith. And Allah the Almighty has instructed us to cleanse our hearts of all forms of negativity and ill will towards others. And also to be ever ready to serve mankind and to fulfill the needs of those who are suffering or deprived in any way. I mean, I think water, you know, is one of the basic rights. All people need clean water to survive. And I think we must have all seen the adverts on TV about people in various developing nations not having access to clean drinking water and having to drink dirty water because yeah. there's no clean water available. And, and the charities that are trying to raise money in order to um, try their best to provide access to, to clean water. Yeah. And even according to the UN um, Sustainable Goals, the statistics say that a third of the people in the world actually don't have access to safe drinking water. So it's quite a, quite an epidemic. I mean, you know, we've seen the adverts, but I was more shocked when I heard about the problems with the water in Flint, America. And, and I had a look, you know, read up on it. And, and what it was, was that in April 2014, during a budget crisis, um, the Flint changed its water source from, um, from one company to another. And as soon as it was changed, the residents complained about the taste, smell and appearance of the water. But officials failed to apply the corrosion inhibitors to the water, which resulted in lead from ageing pipes leaching into the water supply, exposing around 100,000 residents to an elevated level, lead levels. And even though this was found in 2014, it's taken many, many years for all the lead pipes to be um, evacuated, excavated and replaced. And again, this kind of is another example of a company looking to kind of boost their own profits rather than looking into the, you know, the health and well-being of, of the people that they were trying to supply water to. And it, I mean, it, yeah, it, I was going to say, Shazi, on that, I, I watched a documentary where mm-hmm. I don't know if it's true, but in this documentary, it was saying that um, there was a motor plant in Detroit, in Flint, and they they were finding that that water, when they switched the supply from the from the river to the lake, the new supply of water was corroding the car parts. 
so they complained and then the local government whoever they were there switched only their supply only for that car plant back to the old source so that the water is so such high levels that it corrodes car parts can you imagine what it was doing to the people that were drinking it or you know bathing in it it just seems horrendous doesn't it that in a country like the united states of america a whole town was exposed in this way and it took so long before it was then you know fixed um you know it's incredible that that even happened but Mm. you know as i was saying that you know many charities are trying to improve the conditions of the poorest in developing nations And Humanity First, which is a charity, has a project called Water for Life, where they're installing and repairing village level water facilities and installing toilet facilities, because obviously you need the hygiene as well as just the the water facilities in school. Um, And obviously, you know, we can all contribute to these schemes so that we can make use of the blessings that we can get. You know, imagine how many blessings that is to to, to kind of assist people in, in, in water, you know, and when we have our annual convention and we teach our children that, you know, the way the way to get blessings is, is giving water to people. So, you know, we, we should all partake in this to, to enable us all to, to get the blessings of this. Absolutely. I mean, you spoke of like the, the probably the wealthiest nation in the world having issues. And when we look to the more developing world, for example, in Gaza, in Palestine, 97 percent of their tap water is actually undrinkable. And 26% of the illnesses there are due to or directly related to their dirty water. Um, so Humanity First, which is the charity that you mentioned, Shazia, they have a project alongside the Anera charity to provide safe water in Gaza and Palestine, where the governmental authorities are not really fulfilling their rights towards their citizens. And then when it comes to humanitarian crises, charities, of course, in this instance, as as in many places in the world, they do play a huge role in providing such urgent facilities. I mean, it should, of course, it should always be the duty of the state to provide for its citizens. But in some places, such as in, in Gaza, where this might not be possible for the ongoing reasons, you know, these places rely on external international organisations and NGOs to provide that service for them. And I mean, I think we've seen a lot, we're talking about water and how basic water is to life. And here in the UK, you know, we, we've got clean tap water, we can drink it. It's actually not too expensive at the moment. But actually, what we've seen is um, over this summer is sewage being dumped into the sea. So that's, again, a gov- uh, private companies, these are not, it's not the government are not doing it. But there is sort of anger at the government that why are they allowing private companies when it's a basic need or it's a natural resource? Because there is some idea which we spoke of in Islam, that Islam has uh, laid this out, you know, 1500 years ago, that some parts of the world are a trust. They're a natural resource and we shouldn't just deplete them or exploit them or damage them. And that includes water in the sea with the sewage or the energy prices. So, you know, there, there is something different about companies that deal with um, these particular issues. And <clears throat> even where the state do not own or intervene, they're still the people, the citizens, especially here in the UK, are saying, actually, the state needs to do something, even though it's in the hands of private business. And well, the latest, yeah. you know, the population and those companies are not doing anything, you know, the state has to get involved. I mean, that isn't that their role to kind of look after and protect its citizens. But absolutely, but only in only in relation to the to the basic needs, mm. right? So, you know, they wouldn't get involved in a 
uh, Lord Sugar and his uh, computer company, or they wouldn't get involved in Manchester United and its uh, or any other football team, because these are not basic needs. But when you're talking about water and heating, you're right, Shazia, there's a different dimension. There's a moral dimension. Yes, companies are making profit, but because it's a requirement for safe living, there is a moral aspect to the way in which they're dealt with. And, you know, this latest rise in energy prices, for the UK at least, you know, it's been termed a crisis. And economists are speaking up publicly about the need for leadership, as we said, state leadership, to reform and to make changes. Uh, you know, I reflected, I was just thinking on it, on revolutions which may have changed, um, which may have happened and been sparked off in the basic needs. So the price of bread has caused many disruptive or changing sociopolitical movements in history and actually even up to modern day. So very famously, Marie Antoinette um, is alleged to have told the poor people complaining about the price of bread to, you know, let them eat cake when they couldn't afford to eat their what was considered a, a basic staple of their diet. And even we know how that ended for the uh, French royal family. I don't think it ended well for them. And similarly, even today, Sudan has also seen an uprising in recent years. Um, a lot of it centered on the price of bread and the other basic other increases and in basic ingredients, um, which is making people fall into extreme poverty. So, you know, considering that we've seen these social movements through history spark up when basic needs become unaffordable, should we be worried about the peace of the UK when people are in fuel poverty? Do you think it's going to have an impact on the peace of society? I think that we have to realise that we live in a world where countries impact each other. Um, and instability in one country can spread beyond its own borders. For example, you know, if there's a refugees or a conflict, unrest is rarely contained within one country. And where there is instability in a particular country, that instability can spread across borders into other countries. You know, for example, the war and the problems in Syria have meant that people have fled from Syria. And of course, the UK and Europe believe that they're all coming to the UK. But in fact, most Syrians who are refugees because of the Syrian civil war remain in the Middle East itself. Turkey hosts about 3.8 million Syrians. Um, and that's the largest number of refugees hosted by any country in the world. Syrian refugees are also in Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq. And, you know, returnees face a daunting situation, including a lack of infrastructure and services and danger from explosive devices. And so... You know, they, they don't want to return at this point where there is still no peace or safety in Syria. About 6.9 million are displaced within Syria itself and nearly 14.6 million people in Syria need humanitarian assistance, according to the United Nations. Um, and that is just an example of where that um, conflict has spread, you know, completely beyond its borders. Um, and then if we look at the current situation in Ukraine and the wheat availability, I mean, the war in Ukraine is preventing grain from leaving what's known as the breadbasket of the world, um, which is making food more expensive across the globe and threatening to worsen shortages, um, hunger and political instability in developing countries. So, again, as you said, if people don't have bread in wherever because of the problem in, in Ukraine, how will that affect them and how will that then spread within their country? I mean, you know, Russia and Ukraine together export nearly a third of the world's wheat and barley. You know, it's not the situation now where people 
grow their own food and then use that food. You know, food comes from all over the world. Um, and more than 70% of it's sunflower oil and are big supplies of corn. Um, and I think, you know, recently, you know, we've seen in our supermarkets where, um, you know, the price of sunflower oil has gone up. And there was a situation I know in some supermarkets where they were saying there may be a shortage and people were told you can't buy more than two bottles of sunflower oil because there was going to be a shortage. Um, you know, we, we've all seen the rise of the prices and the lack of availability of all of these products. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that there's there's a clear injustice between the profit versus basic needs. And that that's clear and obvious. But I think it, it also definitely affects the peace in society at large, especially so here in the UK, when the impact of the projected price rises begins to really hit homes and pockets, which is is set to happen in the winter, which is why everyone's so concerned about what will happen in the winter and the months to come. I mean, the trajectory and based on previous times, it is set to worsen quite significantly. And we are approaching what will be seen as a recession in the the coming months and, and turning over to next year. I mean, just looking at the interest rates, which has rose to 1.75%, which is huge, as the bank battles then to stem those soaring prices and inflation is, is going to hit over 13%. So that's one aspect. But energy bills, again, winter is going to be difficult for a lot of people. And average families in the UK will be paying over £300 a month for their energy bills by October. So that's an obscene amount of money for this basic need. And moving on to the cost of food and the use of food banks. I know we spoke a little bit about this before, but if we just move to food banks and the use of food banks throughout the pandemic, that was that was when they really came into play. And a lot of people who might have never used them before began to use them. And the Trussell Trust records that between April 2019 and March 2020, which is sort of the height of the, the pandemic, really, food banks in that network provided 1.9 million food supplies to people in crisis, which is over 18% increase on the previous year. So you can see even during COVID, the food banks, the needs for the food banks have increased and that will increase further. So I think there can't really be peace if the situation, if the situation, sorry, continues to get worse and worse, which it seems to be. I mean, I think we've already seen quite a few indicators of how the economic situation and yes uh, i think we've we've looked through the lens of the energy crisis because it's it's most stark this um this dichotomy between the profits and the suffering it, it it's most stark when you look at um energy companies but we've already seen indications of social unrest we've seen you know strikes by the um not just the train drivers, but people working with with trains on the train networks. Again, this is a a, a company that used to be owned by the state, but they're now privatised, franchised companies. And, you know, they've been striking about just getting a a basic increase in their pay. And similarly, they've been saying, well, the company is making 500 uh, million in profit. They can give a small section of that to the workers to increase. Post office workers have been on strike today. We've also had um, lawyers and the justice system, people there being on strike. So at the moment, it feels like I these kind of... Little- there have been men in Scotland that are now on strike as well. Mm. It, it feels like there's little pockets of uh, of unrest 
bubbling up everywhere they're little bubbles and at the moment it's kind of in separate industries and people are striking as they negotiate with individual companies or individual industries but actually i think bright bright heating affects everybody heating and light two things that we need and i wonder when everybody's feeling the pinch if that's going to create more unrest i mean i i don't know if you can remember any any times of unrest that you've seen before i remember the riots in um was it 2011 or 2010 yes yes yeah and that was a scary time i mean i don't know if you remember that shazia yes because we had to close the office early and they told everyone to go home early because they were expecting there to be problems in the area where i work um and we were told to to leave by 2:30 and go straight home um to try and avoid the problems And did you feel scared? Did you feel there was a sense of danger yes, at that time? Yes, I think people were rushing to to kind of, you know, get back to their homes etc to to avoid the problems there. And I think, you know, when we watched them on the TV and I think it was in Croydon, wasn't it, that there was a mm. furniture store that was burnt down and and places that were looted. It it was a very scary time. And I wonder, I don't know if Melissa if you've ever I don't know if you remember as far back as far back as that <laughs> or if it spread up to Manchester. No there were definitely the riots it was a, it was a huge thing at that time there was pockets of it in Manchester as well but I think London was where it was hit the worst and that was sort of what was all over the news at that time it was quite a quite a feeling of panic I think at that time people didn't know what was happening and people didn't realize how how bad it was for certain areas as well It was it was frightening because I think you saw daily life change as Shazia said so I remember my son was in nappies and i remember going to buy nappies and again as shall i say it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and i remember the shops closing and bordering up and shutting up because they didn't want there to be problems and they thought there might be rioting and and it meant that your daily life changed and it was violence and anger there was both violence and anger now obviously those riots were sparked by a, a different issue but the potential for society which seems peaceful on the surface mm. to inflame very quickly i mean all that happened in the matter of a few days so it didn't take very much to change you know our routines and and the sense of peace it was gone you know almost overnight um so i don't and that was only very contained that was only for a few days in some few areas but the fear that we felt was was quite widespread especially mm-hmm. across london um but it, it's a reminder that it doesn't take much for we can never be so secure that our we feel our our society is peaceful because actually that can change very often and i without expecting it exactly and i remember um reem shreki who we've had on this program many times before she spoke came and spoke to my class about her childhood in syria and you know all of her young life up until young adulthood syria was a beautiful peaceful calm lovely place to live and it's changed so much um in a short amount of time so if it could happen there i'm sure it has the potential to happen um anywhere mm-hmm. so here at voice of islam and on the pathway to peace you know we've often discussed economic needs and how they link to peace Islam has extensive philosophical and practical guidance on how both individuals and companies should use their wealth. Um you know and it does give guidelines to people and it tell you know it has rules and regulations some are very clear some are open to interpretation. But um 
you know, Shazia, is profit and wealth a bad thing? Isn't it a sign of success that companies are doing well? Is it not? Should we not be proud of those companies? Is it not good for the national economy? Uh, why are we considering this situation to not be good? Well, I think, you know, as as we've kind of discussed a little bit above as well, I think wealth itself is not a bad thing. Um, as we talked about the ver- first converts to Islam, and, and the very first convert was the wife of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of uh, God be upon him. And her name was Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her. She was an extremely wealthy business owner in the caravan trade. But what set her aside um, from all the other wealthy people was that she actually gave all her wealth away in the cause of her faith to be distributed amongst the community and those in need. And so, you know, the more wealth you have, it doesn't mean you're meant to kind of be a miser and, and keep it all to yourself. But actually, you need to help those people that, that are in need. And His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, has said that there is a share in wealth for those in need. And he's given a definition of the needy. And that was done at the recent Jalsa Salana, which is the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in the UK. And he gave a very broad ranging and incisive speech about this topic. topic. And he said, materialistic people try to attain their own rights out of their own vested interests. However, Islam emphasizes that a person should seek to fulfill the rights of other people without any self-interest. But that includes large companies as well as individuals. I think the problem comes when people kind of seek to look at their own needs um, and not at the people around them, because some people seem to believe that just because they have money, they are maybe entitled to the money or it's only for them rather than kind of for the betterment of society at large. Yeah, absolutely. And from an Islamic perspective, helping those people in need, irrespective of whether you're in financial difficulty or hardship yourself, is actually seen as a way for Muslims to become closer to God. And it's actually said in the Holy Quran that, and I quote, never shall you attain to righteousness unless you spend out of that which you love. And whatever you spend, Allah knows surely, Allah surely knows it well. And that's in the Holy Quran, chapter three, verse 93. So the Holy Quran is emphasizing this, this giving away of wealth for the sake of God alone. And God will increase that wealth, which is, is promised, which says in the Holy Quran again, who it is that will lend Allah a goodly loan that he may multiply it for him manifold. And Allah receives and enlarges and to him shall you be made to return. So again, it, it speaks about, well, you don't actually become poorer this concept of becoming poorer by giving away, that's not actually a thing within Islam. It's, it's actually encourages people to, you know, be very generous and be very giving with their money. And this concept of zikah or the compulsory alms, which is give, one of the five pillars of Islam, and it's defined by who it's intended for. So you were speaking a, a bit earlier, Shazia, about who, who is the needy and, and the speech that His Holiness did on, who, well, who falls into that category so interestingly, the Holy Quran distinguishes between the poor and those who are needy. And it says in this verse, the arms are only for the poor and the needy and for those employed in connection therewith and for those whose hearts are to be reconciled and for the freeing of the slaves and for those in debt and for the cause of God and for the wayfarer, an ordinance from Allah and Allah is all-knowing wise. So it, it, it splits the categories of the poor and needy and it breaks it down and tells you who exactly this you know this money is is meant for so the second caliph of the Ahdi Muslim community his holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed may God be pleased with him 
spoke a little bit more in detail about, you know, these two, these two groups of people, the poor and the needy. And it talks about who those who are perhaps, you know, stricken in poverty or they are suffering with diseases or the needy may signify those who, you know, they may want to be employed or have means of work, but they may be unemployed for, for whatever reason that may be. And those possessing the ability to work, but lacking the means or the ability to do so. So I feel like that's quite an important distinction because it covers many people in society who often feel forgotten or left out. I mean, what's quite, you know, topical at the moment is the concept of ableism. And that's recently come to the forefront um, in the media, especially in Western nations. But the rights of the most vulnerable in society were put first by the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So he spoke about those who were chronically ill, those with disabilities who were unable to work and those who cannot find work, unable to secure a job. Those with refugee status, unable to find work until they legally, you know, have leave to remain in whatever country they may live in. And the verse also mentioned those who have become sort of detached from their home country or those new converts who need that financial assistance and help. And, you know, sort of prisoners of war and those who are in debt. So under this system, we have spoken about a lot of different things there. But in this system, there shouldn't really be anyone who feels left out in a, in a true sort of Islamic society. And I think, you know, you mentioned the speech which um, His Holiness gave on the last day of the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention. And he mentioned specifically um, those who ask for help and those who don't ask. So that was also really interesting because it was also a lot about those people who don't even ask for help. And that covers so many people, especially in the current situation, people who are working. We're not only talking... In Islam, this concept of sharing your wealth, which is what we're talking about, wealth itself is not considered wrong in Islam, whether it's an individual or a country or a state. But the concept is that within that wealth, other people have rights on it. It's not if you just hoard your wealth only for your own benefit and you don't circulate that money or enable other people to benefit from it, that's where it's wrong. Now, it doesn't mean Islam is not an extreme religion. It doesn't mean give away all of your wealth and live, um, you know, uh, the life of a pauper. That's not the principle in Islam. There's always moderation. But there is um, a principle that if you are wealthy, other people have rights on your wealth, and you should make sure that you're distributing it. And as you said, the the head of the Afghan Muslim community, Hazrat Mizra Masroor Ahmed, he spoke about even those people who don't ask. And we know in the current economic crisis that... Um, you know, that, that, that people aren't necessarily out of work, but they are fearful of the situation and angry about the situation. And I read today as well that <clears throat> BP have promised to give 10% of their profits to charity. And um, I thought, okay, well, that's a start at least. You know, it's not a lot, but <clears throat> it means that even BP itself is acknowledging that their, their profits are so vast that they can give at least 10% away as a charity so that was quite interesting it made me feel that even these companies who are not living by necessarily by religious guidelines they're living by business guidelines even they are acknowledging in this energy crisis that actually they have a responsibility to redistribute some of their profits and you know it's clear from what you've already said that the situation is grave 
and that intervention of some sort is needed. You know, we're talking about private companies making huge profits and people being unable to pay or unable to heat their home. So this intervention is, you know, has two strands. Maybe the government, which is who people are looking to, people are looking to government to help. They could possibly help people to alleviate their worries and strains. And they also probably need to prevent further anger and unrest, as we spoke about, which could result in a threat to their leadership and to their power and to their authority. So that unrest actually has a direct impact on the um, government and their strength or their authority. But, you know, then other people might feel that energy companies should just deal with the issue themselves. And because it's a private company, the state should be not involved. So how important is leadership here? What role can leadership play in in maintaining peace in what is quite a tricky situation? Yeah, I think leadership obviously plays quite a crucial role because they're the one who who make the, the key decisions based on what's happening in society. I mean, we could speak of two different kinds of leadership. For Ahmadi Muslims, we, we obviously believe in the law of the land and follow the law of the land, and that's an imperative part of faith. So when we look to the state leadership in the UK, there is seems to be, as we've discussed today, much frustration, you know, from the apparent lack of action from those perhaps in power here. But that's that's widespread beyond the UK even as well. And we can also, as Anthony Muslims, talk about caliphate, which also plays a huge role in promoting social stability. I mean, if we t- talk about the current caliph, he comes from a background of agricultural interest. And His Holiness Mirza Musrur Ahmed, the current worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, he was the first successful person to grow wheat in Ghana for the first time. And His Holiness has been at the forefront of raising the standards of healthcare and access to resources in developing nations too. So this sort of relies on those trained in world-class facilities and educational institutions perhaps here in the West, in in the UK and and in the US and and other places here, to volunteer their time, basically, and to dedicate their services in these developing nations in order to train their local communities, in order to build on their self-sufficiency and to have a high standard of care themselves. So, for example, one such institution, which is a new one, it's called the Masrur Eye Institute, which is in Burkina Faso in West Africa, And that's a facility which is currently being built by the funding of the male elders of the UK of the Ahmadi Muslim community. And similarly, there are are lots of other projects like this. I mean, the the UK ladies of the Ahmadi Muslim community in the UK are sponsoring the building of what's called the Aisha Maternity Hospital in Sierra Leone, also in West Africa, which is a place with one of the highest mortality rates of young women in childbirth in the world. So it's about serving the needs of what are those basic needs, which we keep coming back to in this show is what are the basic needs of people? And here, these are two ways in which people here in the West are using their time and also their money in order to help facilitate that for those who perhaps don't already have it. And I mean, moving to the future, if we're speaking on the topic of leadership, we are ever more connected than ever before. You know, obviously technology can continue to be used for the greater good. And understanding the harms of of perhaps being interconnected and tackling inequalities head on would be such a huge start. I mean, I I, um, I know you've mentioned some uh, efforts of Humanity First and some medical interventions that are 
on medical programs that Humanity First and the Apple Muslim community are behind. But I always remember when, and Hazul said it more more than one occasion now, but I remember when Hazul, when the head of the Apple Muslim community, who we refer to as Hazul, was traveling in America, and he said there to an audience that we will wipe the, your tears, we will wipe the tears of those who are troubled. And that is the compassionate principle that Islam promotes. And I think perhaps a lot of people don't remember that or they don't understand that, that Islam is based on compassion and service to others. And um, I recently attended a conference with Humanity First where they were talking about um, the hospital in Guatemala. And I had assumed naively that it was um, just a charitable, you know, free, everybody come and, and, and get their healthcare for free. But as I listened to this presentation by the, the person who's behind the setting up of this hospital, he said, no, you know, it's not free. Um, we are running it as a business, and, but it's not a for-profit business. So those who can pay, they pay a fee, they pay an amount, and they get their medical care at a good price, you know, you know, equivalent, not an extortionate price, a fair and just price. And because those people are paying the market rate and the hospital's making a profit, that enables them to offer some other care, at, um, you know, a discounted or a subsidized rate. Um, so, you know, the whole model there is a business model and it involves profit and it involves charging people, but it's equitable. So those who can pay, pay a fair price. And those who can't are given the ability to access healthcare without it being a burden on them, although it's not entirely free, but whatever they can pay is given. So I thought that was a really interesting. And that, of course, is being done under the leadership of His Holiness, Hazrat Mizur Masroor Ahmed, under Islamic guiding principles. So it just remains for me to say thank you, ladies, for joining me today. I know a lot of people out there may well be worried about their cost of energy and what's happening in the months to come. So I'd urge you to look online or contact your assistant advice bureau and seek support. Even the energy companies themselves are offering support and advice. Um, so reach out if you feel that you're struggling because there is help out there to be had. Um, and I hope that you've enjoyed participating in, in the discussion. I'd just like to leave with um, a quote, uh, again, by the head of the Afghan Muslim community, who was just outlining the principles that Islam has when it comes to wealth and profit and basic needs, which we've been discussing today. So he elucidated uh, in his speech that whenever a beggar or a person in need would come to the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, to ask for help, he would advise his own companions to also make the case for the person in need so that they can also benefit from the reward of Allah the Almighty of doing charity. Thus, not only has the right of the person who seeks help been explained in this reference, but rather the people who support a person in his efforts to seek help have also been given glad tidings of attaining the reward of Allah. So it's not an individual effort. Nobody should feel that they're alone. In an Islamic society, we should support everybody, Muslim or not Muslim, to, to meet their basic needs and to get help. 
And it further goes on to say that the attention of the believers has been drawn towards ensuring that they too should try to help those in need. And if they themselves are not able to help the person who has a legitimate need, then they should try to find a way for that person to get the help that is needed. And it is reported that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, once said, Find me amongst the weak and poor. Surely you are provided for and helped only due to your, due to your support of the weak and deprived. And here the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, proclaims that he stands shoulder to shoulder with those who are weak and defenseless. And that if a person desires to attain the love, his love and the love of Allah, he should seek to help those who are helpless and who are the victims of misfortune. That's the quote. And that includes those who ask and those who don't ask. This is such an inclusive and holistic approach that Muslims should follow. That if society was built, whether a company or an individual or a state, along those principles of caring for all and all members supporting each other, I'm sure that that would be a peaceful society. You can also join in with the conversations on hashtag VOIPeace and look at our Twitter feed. Jazakallah for joining us. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.